Hello my lovelies and welcome to The Natural High. So it was a Friday evening in Oakland sometime in summer 2019. Me and my beloved had probably met somewhere local for a drink after work before sauntering home for a typically pleasurable evening of amateur music club as my prodigiously talented wife continues to master her ukulele while I strum a few guitar chords and sing my little heart out. On this particular evening, though, my attention was drawn to a certain ambience emanating from the street. As I moved to my balcony, I could hear live music and frivolity somewhere close by in this pleasant residential neighbourhood which borders Lake Merritt in Northern California. It wasn't just any old live music. This was really good. As a music aficionado, my senses were particularly stimulated. I'm not the most outgoing person in the world, but I was compelled to investigate the source of this beautiful sound. I skipped out of my place to locate the music and scope out the relevant joint. When I got there, the place was overflowing with bonhomie. The door to this grand dwelling was open, and there were half a dozen people happily philosophising on the lawn and driveway outside. It was a particularly inviting scene and didn't feel in the least bit exclusive. It was more than just a private party in a private house. I went to the door and was fortunate enough to be greeted by Ilana Lipset, who told me I was welcome to come and join the fun. After only 10 minutes in Euclid Manor, I knew that this place ticked every single box for me as a perfect evening out. There was something immediately mystical about the space and its people. There was something of a netherworld feeling here, like that which Owen Wilson steps into in Midnight in Paris. The sort of experience where a part of you suspects that if you leave the house, you'll never be able to find it again. An uber-friendly music crowd, informal and free, the musicians milled around this dimly lit, beautifully maintained house and seemed to play a song whenever the mood took them. It was one of those serendipitous experiences which you remember forever. Yet another example of how spontaneity pays. There's a young man in me, scared as can be, frightened by shadows on the wall. I wish I'd been there by his side, pulled out branches in the night. And how only light can make those shadows fall And how my walk was late As a field we used to play Sheltered by the reeds and the land When no darkness came along We would stop and sing a song we leave all that fears behind Rubber times and cloudy dirt And those huge old hand-me-down shirts Were made free by some rich boys Worlds away But for the afternoon, it was only me and you, and for that I could clearly say, to say that on those days we held our heads up. Tired. 
How you doing? Good. How are you? Very well indeed. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for reaching out. So firstly, how are you coping with the whole coronavirus madness? Oh my God. Um, I mean, on the, on the external facing side, it actually doesn't seem as crazy. Um, I feel super fortunate to have a home, to have a job, to not have these um, you know, crazy disruptions that a lot of people are dealing with that affect them in a really real way. So I feel very grateful for that. Um, you know, internally, my level, my emotional level and my stress levels are like all over the place and unpredictable. And it's just kind of learning to learning to exist with all of that and do what I can to take care of myself and, and take care of my community and yeah, do what I can and find, I don't know. <laughs> it's difficult right now. How about you? I like the fact that you say take care of your community. That's beautiful. Um, I don't know. I think that basically my outlook is really important. It's much more important to me than any circumstances. And it sounds to me like you're undertaking the process of general appreciation. And of course, the circumstances provide the context, but you're just an appreciative person in general. I imagine you're the sort of person that wakes up every day and appreciates the things that you do have. Glass half full rather than glass half empty. Yes, I try. Nice. Always the way to be, I believe. I think the outlook is far more important than the circumstances. Yeah, I agree. I, there is some, a quote that I read once that's like, um, oh gosh, I'm going to bungle this. But it, it's basically like joy and gratitude go hand in hand. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, it's so true. Um, but uh, I yeah, I'm, I had such an incredible experience when I came to your place and I hadn't ever, ever done anything quite like that before. I, I don't know. It was just, a, you know, it was a musical event in yeah. Oakland. So, you know, yeah. what what's so unusual about that? Many people might ask, but it just had a feeling about it, a different feeling about it. And the word you've already used community. There was a real community sense about it. It felt like an event that was being done for the right reasons, for mm. all of the right reasons, not in order to generate income, but it, instead to, it wasn't a sort of capitalistic pursuit. It was more of a community pursuit where you're trying to bring people together, just trying to offer something nice to the neighborhood. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I, I love the story of how you came to be at the house as our old neighbor, but although, as you said in the email, you're not living in the neighborhood anymore, but that you literally just followed your ear to the front steps. Um, and then we welcomed you in. And I, yeah, I loved watching you dance and just be so <laughs> astounded by what was happening. And that's, I mean, that's what we want to be doing here. Obviously, right now, we're, we're not doing that because sure. we're following the practicing strict social distancing and sheltering in place. So we're not inviting people into the house. But um, in general, the idea with the house is to be a hub of community, both internally and then externally. So people can come for social events, can come for political fundraisers, can come for a whole range of things that we host at the house. Um, and that it's open to the public. Um, I mean, not everything, but that we can do some things that are open to the public that can bring joy. And yeah, like you said, that aren't about making money, but that are about bringing people together. And that's, that. I mean, one of the things that I've done my whole career is about creating spaces and experiences for people to come together, particularly around cultural um, in, in a cultural context or around things that have universal appeal, like music, like food, um, like dance, like art, things that can help break down other barriers that might exist and just allow people to kind of commune around those and start to find their similarities. And so that's, yeah, that's one of the things that I love about being able to offer to the neighborhood and to the community with the house. Your priorities seem quite rare, and I think we need more of you in the world. You know, people who who uh, prioritize community and, you know, good things and things which don't necessarily involve, you know, financial pursuits. Uh, but I want to ask you about Euclid Manor. How did it come about and who is Dr. Euclid von Imaginal? <laughs> well, uh, yeah, so thank you for asking. I'll start, I'll actually start with the myth, um, or not the myth, with the kind of scientific story from which the name is born. Um, so in Caterpillars, there exist these imaginal cells, which are few and far between, um, but they are the ones that are encoded with the butterfly's DNA, but the rest of the caterpillar doesn't know it. And so the caterpillar kind of makes its way through the world, um, eating through leaves, stuffing itself. I don't I don't know if you've ever read the, the children's book, The Very Hungry Caterpillar, but basically going on a tear and, and consuming well past the point of necessity, um, yeah. a little bit like our own society these days. <laughs> and so true just when it gets to the point of being too full and at the breaking point, it goes into chrysalis um, and kind of becomes this whole cocoon soup. <laughs> and the the whole caterpillar and all of its cells essentially think that it's going to die, except for the imaginal cells, which know what's next, which know that this brighter, beautiful creature is about to emerge. And what they start to do as the rest of the cells start to die is they start to light up and they reach out to the other cells and, um, and and basically form the basis for what the butterfly needs to emerge. And so the wow. idea behind naming the house that way is kind of seeing the parallels to what's happening in a lot of our world today with overconsumption um, and, and also, especially right now, but even before COVID, starting to see a lot of the systems breaking down and feeling like they were on the verge of death, um, but that there are people and communities within the world that do know that a, a brighter future is possible if we're able to reach out and support each other um, and hold each other and and be with each other as we help make this new world emerge. And so that's part of the idea behind the house is to have it be that place where people who are um, imaginal cells or interested in kind of that that new rebirth um, wow. this together and support each other in in realizing those visions. Amazing. Um, so Euclid Manor is a co-living space. How is co-living different from just living in a house with other people that you don't know? And what are the general benefits of co-living? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think, I mean, a, a good analogy is that it's basically like living with your chosen family in that we do we don't do everything together. Although I feel like I have to caveat this with like before COVID and after COVID. Sure. You know, for the last three weeks or so, we've all been sheltering in place together. And so we have been doing pretty much everything together. Um, but short of that, the idea is that it is an intentional community um, in which we have laid out our 
individual and communal values and and have ideas by which we want the the house to be living and that manifests in everything from the choices that we make with the food that we source to the products that we buy to um, what type of events we put on and host for the outside world um, and so I think one of the differences between just having roommates is that when you just have roommates you're kind of each functioning as your own individual unit and you might okay pass by in the hallway or you might pass by in the kitchen or whatever it is. And we each function as our own individual units, but we also function as this larger unit. And so um, everything is done kind of in service of what's best for the house and what's best for our community. And so from a nuts and bolts perspective, what that means is that we share all of our food, all of our food, we shop um, communally, um, all of our chores are spread evenly between people who live in the house. We do projects on the house together. Uh, we do have house meetings about once a month to um, address any issues that might be arising and also to kind of revisit and put in place systems that help the house run smoothly. Um, and yeah, kind of collectively decide when there's an open room, we have an interview process and come to consensus around um, who we want for the for, to fill the open room. So very much functioning as um, as one unit. That vetting process must be pretty stringent, I'd imagine, because because it's such a committed um, space to live in. You know, you've all you're all living by the same sort of edicts and philosophies or similar, um, and you're just in your terms of your way of living, ways of living. It must be quite difficult that selection process. To get the right person. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would say, I mean, it has <clears throat> kind of two sides of the coin is that, yes, on the one hand, it can be difficult and sometimes is like the biggest stressor in the house that we have while we're going through the process. But I think the flip side of it is is, is that it's also a really beautiful reminder each time we go through that process of what our values are and what we're looking for in adding someone to the community. And so it's almost like a recommitment ceremony every time that we go through it. And then bringing somebody new into the house and onboarding them is a reviewing for us too of the systems that we've put in place and the values that we hold for ourselves. So yes, challenging and also beautiful. So would you say that by and large, um, it usually works out? Yes. Wow, fantastic. Well, that's obviously a credit to you people as well, you know, as people that are obviously quite easy to get on with. You know, that's an, that's, Interesting, because I one of the discussions that we've had um, on occasion is when we when we interview someone to to move into the house, there is this question of how much will the house adapt to a new person and a new personality versus how much will that person kind of integrate into the existing culture of the house. And so it's been really I've been here for five years and it's really it's been really beautiful to watch it kind of grow and change over time and exist in different personalities throughout the years based on who's here. Yeah. And I'm sure you're hoping that those new people are going to enrich the space as well, bring in their whole, you know, a whole gamut of new ideas and philosophies and ways in which, you know, they might want to live. Absolutely. Yeah. And and it's so nice because it, it it then exposes everyone in the house to new ideas and new ways of being. So, for example, right now we have um, a person who moved in um, probably five months ago who's really into um, cooking and fermenting and just plant just built some raised beds and planted a garden. And so it's things that wow kind of talked about for a really long time at the house, but nobody either had the expertise or really the time to devote to it. And so having somebody move in who has both of those things has been really special to watch that emerge as kind of a new a new component of the house. Nice. How do you adopt or how do you conceive or create or start a co-living space? Do you need to, do you get some kind of grant to do it or do you just get together with like-minded individuals and rent a place? Yeah, that's a great question. And I know that it's different for every co-living community. We at the Euclid Manor, we're part of a network of homes that's managed by Open Door. Okay. Um, and actually one of the founders of Open Door also lives here. He he helped um, co-found the house as a community. And they work with on a number of different levels where sometimes they'll own a property, sometimes they'll be the property manager, sometimes they're the master tenant. And so it kind of, it even varies property to property within Open Door, but they've, they're helpful in kind of liaising between the group of people that live here and the owner, if it is an owner situation, 
Um, and they help set up a lot of the back end systems for us in terms of paying rent and utilities and all these other things. Wow. So they've been really helpful with kind of the, the back end logistical management system. Um, and, and also in identifying properties. So for, so specifically with the Euclid Manor house, um, I believe, a uh, a small family firm approached Open Door and said, we're interested in turning this particular property into a co-living community. Um, and so they signed a lease together and then brought in, um, there were five of us that lived here for the first six months without anyone else, without much furniture. Um, and in those first five months, we kind of thought through a lot of the different systems and ideas and values for the house and then have kind of seen it blossom and grow from there. It's, it's such a beautiful space. Uh, I was going to ask you also about the musical side of things, because obviously that's a decision that you guys made. It was, it's not something that, you know, is part of the fabric of every co-living space. It's another right. unique, uh, just a, a very distinctive characteristic of Euclid Manor. As you said, I just stumbled upon the place. Um, I lived really close to you guys and I heard some music coming from my balcony one evening, one weekend night, I think it was a Friday. And um, yeah, and I could tell the music was, was, was live music because I used to be in bands myself. And so I could discern the difference. I could hear the live drums and I was just incredibly curious. And so I, I wandered around the corner and you opened the door to me and the place was just so incredibly friendly. Not only did it have that great vibe and real sense of community and fr just friendliness about the whole place, but uh, the music was incredible too. I mean, really good quality. There's a ghost down on St. Matthew's Lawn Sucking the pipeline the whole night long See the way of the tilly choke Father's shaking, it's time to crow Come with me, we can let the sun out Lay your head, the room is very fortunate that we have so many amazing musicians in our community and where do um, they come from are you a musician i am i sing in a band and I, I think just over the years a number of different people who've moved into the house have musical friends and um we think that we see us having this house with a big front room as you experienced um as a huge privilege. And so we want to be able to use it as much as possible to benefit the community, to have events, to bring people together, and also to be able to support our musician friends. And so um, when, if and when we do charge uh, at the door, all of the money goes to the musicians. And it's a really nice way for them to get to meet a whole new audience and to um, have, so, you know, have, a, have a fun way of performing for the night. And I think I'm trying to remember what our very first concert was. And I actually think it was through, um, oh my gosh, I'm going to blank on the name. Ah, there's a, there, there's a platform that was pairing musicians with houses. Um, Sofa sounds. Maybe it was. Sofa. Yeah. 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 Sofa. I think it actually was. Um, 
Thank you. And, and it turned out, uh, it turned out really well. And so after that, we decided this is actually a really good venue for, um, for musicians. And we know so many people within our own network that we could actually just go straight to them and we don't need to kind of go through a middle platform. And so we just started reaching out to our friends and inviting them to play shows. And we've had for a while, we were doing them maybe once a month or every other month. Um, and yeah, it's been really incredible, really, really fun. So you do them around about every month then? Something we were, like yeah, that. Yeah, we were we were doing them quite often up until recently. Are there any drawbacks of doing that? I mean, do you get loads of complaints from the neighbours because it's really loud? I mean, it is, as you say, very um, occasional, but it's very loud. And I also wonder about, you know, just people, how do you vet people coming in off the street? Is there any ever any sort of dangerous element to it? Because the, the crowd that was there was so special. It was all as if they'd been invited rather than just coming off the street like me. Hmm. Um. Great question. So first to the neighbors, we have never had any complaints. I think we wow. we do try to be respectful and have the live music end at a certain time, but we also invite all of our neighbors. So when we, mm. when we have a show, we'll go and invite the, the neighbors that live the closest to us that would be impacted by it. And they've come to a few of them, which has been a really nice way for us to get to know them. Um, we, I actually think you're the only person that's walked up off the street. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and I'm so glad that you did. But I think in general, people don't, I don't know, for whatever reason, people haven't just walked in. Um, a lot of the events have been ticketed. And so mm -hmm. the musicians themselves will send an email out to their followers. We have a listserv that we'll send an email to. And so people, people hear about it that way. Um, but in terms of people walking off the street, we haven't, even with other events that we've had, we've never had an issue. Um, and I like to, I would like to believe that that's a product of kind of the vibe that the house puts out and invites. And so it kind of sets a, sets a model for how people um, can and should behave inside the house. And we found that everyone's been incredibly respectful. And, and I think part of it is because live music is really inspiring for people. And so they want to come and watch it and respect it and be respectful of the place that, that is hosting it. Yeah, so many friendly people there. One guy that I was speaking to yeah. um, asked me to look around the place because I was asking him, why don't, don't more people know about this place? Because it's so beautiful. And he said, well, look around you. He said, for starters, nobody's got their phones on them. Nobody's like taking photos or, or taking movies with their phones. They're talking to each other. And I looked around and that in itself was unusual, you know? Yeah. It's a sort of nice sanctuary where people are actually coexisting in a really nice and communicative way. Absolutely. And a number of us have been involved with um, this initiative called Camp Grounded, part of the digital detox movement, which um, Camp Grounded specifically is summer camp for adults where people's phones and digital devices are completely taken away from them for the ah. weekend. And I think a lot of people, a lot of the musicians that we know have played at camp. And so a lot of the people who come to see the musician, the musicians know them from camp. And so I think they're already culturally or socially primed to not be using their phones at camp events, quote camp events, even if it's not a camp event per se. But I, I think that because of that, people have had the experience of, you know, we're so attached to our screens and our phones that when you do have the opportunity to put it away and connect with someone and experience something in the same way that everyone else is, that it's a really beautiful experience. Mm. I must just jump back because I was speaking to a guy from my apartment block uh, about Euclid Manor <laughs> and I was explaining to him how I just stumbled across the place and he said to me that night, he said, you're the only person I know who would walk into somebody's house <laughs> on, by chance <laughs> if you heard music coming for it. So it's obviously quite an unusual thing to do. That's so funny. Well, I'm glad I was at the door answer and answer yeah. because I would also do the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so pleased I did. If I had a budget, like a limitless budget to put a music event together, I would put something together which looked identical to Euclid Manor because I would imagine the musicians love playing in that space too. Some might feel a little bit intimidated because they are amongst the crowd they're not even close to the crowd they're among the crowd aren't they i remember one yeah. particular artist was playing i'm hoping you can remind me who it is and he was playing on stage with his band and then he just slowly walked across to the grand piano which you also have in your in your place and just started playing some incredible song on the piano yeah absolutely that was graham pastner from whisker man okay 
Gra his name is Graham Paxner. Graham Paxner. I invited a friend who's a musician to, to come play a show and afterwards he said that was not what I was expecting from a house show when you hear house concert you think like 30 people in um, folding chairs and he said yeah. that was the most fun house show that I've ever played so yeah I think to your to your point there is something special about the venue and about the environment there is there one particular artist or event that really sticks in your mind from the last five years one that stands out Mm. Oh my goodness. I mean, there's so many. One I remember we did um, a musician named Travis Puntarelli and he played, he played and then um, one of my housemates kind of interviewed him every other song. So he was talking a lot about the songs and the origins of them. And then we also had another friend who's an artist doing live painting throughout the whole thing. So it's kind of this multi-sensory experience, which was just, just incredible. And then one of the last ones that we did um, before coronavirus hit was with a few musicians who I met on a songwriters retreat in Mexico. Um, and there were people from all over the country there and a few of us who live in the Bay Area. And so I extended the invitation to them to come play a house show. And it was um, Ben Morrison from Brothers Comatose, this band called Bear Market Riot and a woman named Clementine Darling. And they each played an act and then we all played something at the end that we'd written together in Mexico. And it was so fun. Fantastic. That was a recent gig, right? Yeah, that was a few months ago. Uh, I wish I'd been able to get to it. Sounds amazing. Is there a lot of work involved in living in a co-living space? Or, or once you set up these systems, does it sort of run itself? 
there is a lot of work. It does take a lot of energy and devotion. It's like a relationship that um, you set up the systems, you set up the expectations, but then you have to continuously have check-ins along the way and make sure that everyone is still happy um, and that expectations are being met or talk about little issues that have come up along the way. And um, so there, yeah, there, there is kind of from a very logistical perspective, just the work that needs to be done to make the house run things like buying groceries and chores and cooking. Um, but then there are also the kind of bigger systems level questions of um, what type of, uh, well, actually I'll just use the coronavirus as a good example is that we've been having ongoing conversations about what does it mean for our community to shelter in place? What are the expectations that we have of each other? Um, what can, what are we asking, to, uh, what are we asking each other to do and to not do outside of the house? And everyone has kind of different levels of comfort. There are people who have partners that they want to see. And so there's just been ongoing conversations of one, how do we, one, how do we preserve our, our safety? Um, and in doing so respect the need to preserve public health, the public health safety, um, component of it. And then, um, yeah, I mean, from a broader perspective, thinking about what is in the best interest of the public health of this community and this country, but specifically in Oakland where we live, and then how is that impacting and affecting us and what decisions can we make and not make in order to best respect that. And as the situation has changed rapidly, we've had to have ongoing conversations and some of them are painful and some of them are really challenging and really tense. And um, and some of them have been really beautiful because at the end of the day, we realize that we are doing this for each other um, and for the broader community. And so coming together in this really difficult time and and knowing that like we're relying on each other for survival right now and that this thing that we committed to um, is this thing that we committed to takes love and takes energy and takes a lot of work. Um, and is also really supportive. And I can't imagine going through this living by myself right now. Wow. So, so that's another yeah. great benefit of, of living in this sort of space. Yeah, absolutely. Things change so quickly during this pandemic, don't they? I mean, I just think about three or four weeks ago and I was so complacent about it myself, you know, thinking about this was yet another crisis which was a long way from the doorstep, but not necessarily on our own doorsteps. And then you look mm -hmm. at the way the world has changed in the last three to four weeks, it's so frightening. And also it's so unpredictable because we don't know how long we're gonna be in this situation, where, you know, how quickly we can resolve a situation, whether it's gonna take a vaccine before we can really start living our lives normally again. It's, it's so strange. And I just did a podcast about veganism with a good friend of mine. And we were talking mm -hmm. about how so many of these global pandemics start with the consumption and manufacture en masse of animal products. Do you think um, we will learn from the coronavirus? Do you think it will encourage new um, ways of thinking and new ways of living our lives uh, in the micro and the macro? Or do you think we'll just you know, get back to business as usual? Do you think we'll actually learn from the, our mistake here? I hope so. I hope we don't go back to business as usual because I think what's being revealed so clearly right now is how broken business as usual is. Um, yeah, Everything from the completely unequal impacts that the virus is having on how who's able to shelter in place and who needs to continue to work and people on the front lines who are putting their health and their family's health, therefore, um, in danger because they're living paycheck to paycheck and they can't not drive for Uber or they can't not do the Instacart delivery or healthcare workers who need to go to work. And we're, you know, we're so dependent on them and so grateful for them all the way up to, to the way that the um, mortality rates of African-Americans are exponentially higher than um, non than, than other communities and including in cities where African-Americans are a minority of the population, but, but represent a majority of deaths in those communities. And so I think what we're, what we're seeing is the impacts of decades of disinvestment in public health, of um, privatizing our healthcare system, of uh, completely unequal access to economic opportunity that affords you healthcare or affords you um, uh, the ability to move into an area that's not as impacted by environmental 
um, by, by like toxic environmental, um, hazards or other things like that. And so I think my hope is that people finally start to realize how interconnected all of these systems are, both from a, both from a, um, negative standpoint of how the, how kind of each one is a, is a domino that is knocking the other ones down and making this, making this pandemic incredible life or death situation for a lot of people and is allowing other people to retreat to their second homes or to stay in their homes. And so I do hope that people are able to kind of see the interconnectedness of, of, of how all these systems touch each other and then, and then start to see the opportunity in that, which is creating systems that are much more resilient and that do take into account everybody's health, the health of everyone on the planet um, or every creature on the planet. And I, I was just reading an article about um, this, this donut theory of growth and economics that the city of Amsterdam is, is considering or is considering adopting as they rebuild their economy, which takes into account the limits of our planet and makes sure, acknowledges that there's a base level of things that everybody needs to live by. And then, um, and then looking towards the outer circle of the donut, acknowledging that there is an outer limit of growth. And so what do you do when you hit that outer limit and, and ensuring that you're taking care of people as you're growing and as you're growing responsibly? Um, so yeah, my hope is that it does change the way we live in terms of um, prioritizing equity and prioritizing taking care of our climate and our home being, our home being planet Earth. Um, but I do hope that, you know, right now we're seeing with good science behind it, a need for practicing social distancing. And I do hope that that is something um, that we can, that, that we can go back to socializing, that we can go back to gathering in groups because that's such an, a valuable part of human existence. And so um, I hope that eventually, and I do have uh, hope and optimism that we will find a vaccine and that we will be able to get back to that, but I don't know how long it's going to be, but especially, you know, living in, living in community, I so um, deeply understand the benefits of being around people and being surrounded by people and being supported by people. And so um, I, I just, I hope that that the way that we choose to interact with each other and gather with each other is not something that's permanently negatively affected. Yeah, totally. Even after just a few weeks of social distancing, I feel myself doing it automatically. You know, there's almost like an invisible force field between me and this other person that's close to me. And I've just, I do it so naturally now. And I'm quite scared at how quickly that sort of kicked in to my unconscious, my subconscious that I'm just doing it without even thinking. Absolutely. I mean, as I was reading, um, I was reading a book, a novel, and in one of the, in one of the scenes, one of the characters goes out to the library and is engaging with some people. And the first thought in my mind was, but you can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> quickly these things get embedded in our psyches of what we can and can't do and what's normal and what's not. And this, so is, a, crazy. You know, this is a novel. So. Mm. It's our survival instinct. My, my concern is the definition of the term progress these days. When I think about the word progress, I think it means industrialization, providing more to people, more material stuff, cheaper. And that's really the, that's the, the sort of package of, of progress these days. I want us to try and change the definition of the term progress so it, it, it aligns more with sustainability, altruism, you know, but I, I, I'm an eternal optimist myself, but it's something that I really worry about, you know, how we will, how we will recover from this and how we will process it and deal with it diagnose it after the, the, the emergency is over, well, whether we will seriously consider making huge changes and living our life in a more simple and pure and ecologically, environmentally friendly way, or whether we'll just forget about it until the next one. Yeah, I mean, one of the, so I, my day job when I'm not at, when I'm not uh, at the Euclid Manor is at the Institute for the Future. And wow. 52. That sounds so interesting. Yeah, it's it's a it's a wonderful place to work. It's we're a fifty-two year old nonprofit um, that teaches people to think about long-term futures to make better decisions in the present. And so, as you can imagine, a lot of people around the world are asking right now, "Why didn't we see this coming? Why weren't we better prepared?" And in in the futurist community, um, there is a sense of well, a lot of people did see this coming, right? There are a lot of scenarios that you can dig up where people. Um, I wouldn't say predicted 
COVID, but have scenarios in which a global pandemic likely caused by an easily transmissible respiratory disease um, wreaks havoc on our on our social and economic systems, not to mention the 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 human toll that it takes. Sure. And so I think we're in this we're in this moment where people are primed to think about the future and to want to know how to think about the future, which is a lot of what we do at the Institute for the Future is um, teach people to think about long-term futures and different tools that we can practice to be able to put ourselves in future scenarios. And so I do think that we have not a huge window, but I think we have a, a, a window now where people are primed to be thinking about the future. And we do have an opportunity um, to make a collective mindset shift towards thinking more long-term futures, which I think I think has embedded within it the need for sustainability and resiliency. Because if you are able to see out 30, 50, 100 years and think about the implications of all of the industrialization or um, using uh, fossil fuels or kind of mass consumption, you can start to see what the impacts are going to be. And you start to think beyond quarterly profits, you start to think beyond what's happening this month or next month or this year or this election cycle. And so I, again, I do think there is a, is an opportunity for a mindset shift, but it needs to be very intentional in how it's done. Um, and I think there is an opportunity to, um, see bigger than, um, in thinking about the future, see bigger than, okay, what do we do in, in the face of the next pandemic? But like, what do we do in the face of climate change? Because that kind of is going to be the next pandemic. It's just rolling in at a slightly slower speed. But I think it, we can we can start to draw the parallels and start to um, start to think with a with a more futures oriented mindset. Yeah, totally. Uh, I think that a lot of people can get apathetic because they feel like it's such a big problem, you know, problems of uh, halting global warming, for example, such a big problem that one person can't make a difference. But I think it, that one person absolutely has to realise that, you know, the ch change around the world starts at home. You know, I all I can promise to myself is that I will not be part of the problem moving forward. So mm -hmm. the way that I will live my life is the way that I, yes, I want other people to live their life that way, but I can only control myself. And if I live in a green, friendly, altruistic, environmentally friendly way, then that's the, that's the best I can do in the first instance. Right. And, and I think it has a, it can have a positive ripple effect too, right? Yep. Showing other people and you can bring that message to work or to school or to your communities. And, and I think that when enough people start to demand that the institutions, which are the, you know, which are the biggest polluters, but when enough of a mass of people start to demand change from the institutions, then you can see it start to happen at scale and on a bigger level. Um, and you can start to see how your individual choice becomes a collective, a collective voice that is making demands of a government or of a corporation or of an industry to change the way that they're doing things. What is the biggest problem facing humanity right now? It's easy for us to both agree that it's the coronavirus, but is there something bigger at play just in terms of, you've talked about mindset quite a lot, and that's something that really resonates with me because I do feel that we've been either told to, to want and desire certain things, or we naturally, innately want and desire certain things but n neither of those wherever it's coming from that desire it's not necessarily helping the planet and helping to proliferate humankind so what is the biggest problem we face yeah i mean I, you 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 did mention it i think that the ecological crisis that is caused by human-made climate change is the biggest challenge that we're facing i mean loss of biodiversity mass extinctions collapse of systems um, and then also how it's affecting different communities and how it is just widening the gap between the rich and poor. And I like to say that extreme climate events are pretty indiscriminate in where they touch down, but they impact poor communities at a much greater scale than they impact richer communities. And richer, or wealthier communities are able to bounce back quicker. Um, they might have resilient, um, more resilient systems in place or the ability to rebuild or to or to pay for the the rebuilding that's necessary and in a lot of poor communities who are already at the you know who are already at the receiving end of environmental injustice both in terms of policies and where actual um, where actual pollution is 
is occurring and is concentrated, it's a lot harder for them to, to, um, to recover from those scenarios. So mm. I think that the actual ecological crisis is one of the biggest challenges. And then also it's, um, it's cascading impacts of how that is dry, how that's driving inequality and furthering inequality. So, I mean, I think that, I think we can overcome it, but we need to act now and we need to act fast. And, and I think, you know, if, if there's one thing that we can learn from this current crisis, it's to, it's to plan, it's to adapt, and it's to build regenerative systems that take into account all life on this planet. And that we as humans are fragile beings and we're so beautifully, but also so frighteningly dependent on each other. Mm. And so if, if we can think about that in how that impacts all of our actions, knowing that what I do over here could actually have a negative impact, impact on someone in Brazil or consequently, something that I do over here in Oakland could have all these cascading benefits and have a positive impact on someone in China. And so it's down to the choices that we make. Leading by example. Yeah. Beautifully framed and extremely eloquent. I'm going to ask you some gen more general questions now because you are clearly a creative person and something of an artist yourself. So maybe you could tell us. Uh, about your favorite artist. Who's your favorite artist? Can be musical or otherwise. Well, and uh, and other things that inspire you creatively and artistically. Who are some of your biggest influencers? Oh, my biggest influencers. Okay, well, I'll say the on repeat on my Spotify right now. <laughs> um, Alenario. She's been a huge musical influence on me. Amazing. I love her music and I love her lyrics. Um, actually was supposed to see her perform live tonight at the UC theater. That obviously is not going to happen. Which but... one's the UC? Whereabouts uh, is that? On university in Berkeley. I went to see her there about six months ago. She played there six months ago and I went to see her at that exact venue. I did too. No way. You were at that gig. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And there were loads of crazy support acts as well. Yeah. Like really cool. Like mother earth style support acts. Yeah. You yeah. were at that gig. It was so cool amazing yeah so she's been a huge musical influence i've been listening to her a lot um i also love nako and medicine for the people and in particular he has this one song called tus pies and i've been listening to that on repeat i've been in this mode where i will put on a song and listen to it for like five days and it's, it's so comforting <laughs> for what i need right now do it to death yeah and also rising appalachia is another one another group that i love um, and then I'm just, I mean, I'm right now, I'm so inspired by the creativity that the internet is allowing to the world to see Yeah, <laughs> all these parody songs that are, that people are doing and global collaborations that people are putting together, both music and dance, um, and visuals. And I'm just so inspired by what people are able to do. And I, somebody was, you know, Somebody was saying that a lot of the a lot of great work has come out of writers or musicians or other creatives who've been in quarantine. So amazing works of art or um, novels or other creative ideas that came um, that kind of came on mass after the 1918 flu, after people were wow. quarantined or um, even after the Black Plague, you know, centuries ago. So I. I I think there is the the potential for a lot of creativity to come out of this or yeah. say potential. There is a lot of creativity that is already coming out of this. And I think, I, I think that one of the amazing things about that is that it, it, it's universal. And so it's a, it's a way that we, I mean, we're, we're all as a world, we're undergoing this collective trauma and it's going to be really difficult to process it. We have to come up I mean, people can't even grieve with each other right now for the people that they're losing. And so yeah. how to come up with new grieving rituals and new ways of dealing with this trauma. And so I think all the creativity that's coming out now is almost this like preemptive collective response to that trauma and to starting to heal um, as we are experiencing it. So true. And I've heard so many people down the years talk about how moments of adversity or times of adversity have been some of the most pivotal springboards in their life, in fact. And I hope that's going to be the case with this situation. But I have to say, 
on a lighter note, I have never been able to write a song when I'm happy, <laughs> ever. It just doesn't happen. Yeah, I hear that. I th I actually think I I love writing parody songs, and the band that I sing in, we're we're called the Sea Stars, and we're a mostly a cappella group, and we have a few songs that are parody style songs where we've rewritten pop songs to be about sustainability. And those have been so fun to write. And we also have other, other original songs that are also in the same theme of respecting and honoring the earth and where we've come from. I'd never eat a fish dragged in a nest. I cut down on the dairy and the beef cause of methane. And yet we're proud of our address on this spaceship Earth. We learn from Bucky, but all the news is like Koch brothers, Donald Trump tripping in the boardroom, cellophane, cell phones, trashing up the landfills. We don't care. We're driving Teslas in our dreams, and all the news is like cracking, drilling, offshore oil rigs, jet planes, poachers, lions on a gold leash. We don't care. We aren't caught up in their love affair, cause we don't need no oil. It don't run in our blood. That kind of muck just ain't for us. We're getting on a different bus. Let me get that But I love writing parody songs, and so those I can those I can write when I'm happy. But the majority of the other music that I write comes out of a place of um, of sadness or or challenge. Okay, parody. I'm going to start thinking about that genre more when I'm trying to write songs when I'm happy. I don't wish to be unhappy, but it's just that I can't write any music <laughs> while I'm while I'm happy. Um, you did send me a brilliant song that you made uh, with some friends, and you did it remotely, right? Yeah, the stay-at-home one. Yeah. If you're feeling any symptoms, just stay at home and observe. Do everything you can to flatten the curve. about your perfect day what does it look like mm, perfect day I mean without to be honest without kind of resting in my privilege too much because I recognize that being but that say in saying this I am acknowledging a ton of privilege that I have to be able to do this but I feel like the last few weeks anxiety and sadness aside um, have had elements of perfection. They've been a lot slower than usual. I've been cooking a lot. I've been spending time in the sun in, in my backyard. And I say that kind of with a heavy heart, knowing that there are so many people who, who can't work from home, who don't even have a home, mm. um, or for whom living at home puts them in danger of yep. abuse. And so I, I just want to acknowledge that. But there is, there definitely has been something very sweet for me about being able to slow down and spend time with my housemates and, um, yeah, and cook a lot and go on socially distant runs and hikes, <laughs> um, and kind of not feel the sense of busyness that the Bay Area, that the Bay Area hustle, ha you know, invites people into where there are a million things to do and there are a million amazing things to do. But sometimes it's nice to slow down and not feel like you have to say no. And just, you know, everybody is everybody is observing this right now. So there, there's no FOMO. You're right. Absolutely. It does give us all a little bit of a time for rumination, doesn't it? And I can I've definitely sensed some of the things that you're talking about during this hiatus. Uh, mm -hmm. The rat races has, has been suspended for a while and it gives you a lot of time to think about, yeah, the, you know, what you're happy with and unhappy with in your life, things that you wish to improve, you know, um, health uh, regimens and things like that. I can certainly say that I've been a lot more healthy since all the pubs closed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
so I've got a few more questions for you. Have you ever seen anything that defies science? What's the strangest thing you've ever seen? I just love asking this question. I know it's completely off topic. The strangest thing that I've ever seen. Um, it's a really great question. And I know you sent that to me ahead of time. I should have, <laughs> I should have thought about it. I hope you can edit this part out. <laughs> you may never have seen anything bizarre. So, you know, that's, that's totally cool as I mean, well. But I have. I'm just trying to think of what, you know, what that would be. So I wouldn't, I don't know that I would call this the strangest thing, but um, I had an experience in Mexico. I was staying with a friend of mine who's an energy healer and uh, his whole house is like a temple and an altar to the supernatural and to um, deities and spiritual beings. And he did an, a healing session on me and I experience things that I could not believe that I was experiencing just in terms of visuals and what I was feeling. And I, this was kind of, uh, you know, there, it was not any type of induced experience. And so I was just lying on the table, getting this energy work done and, and speaking to him what I was experiencing and seeing. And he was channeling something and was saying, oh yeah, I, I'm seeing that too, or I'm, I'm feeling that too, or I would have a thought pop into my mind. And then he would literally ask me a question about whatever I was thinking about. It was what I, I ended the experience. All I could say was, I believe in everything now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, like, I don't know how to understand this. And my brain is so tuned to wanting to understand like what's happening with you know, what's happening with my synapses? How are all these senses being connected? What's going, what are the neuro processes that are happening right now to understand it? And I, and I ended the session with just an acceptance of some things there aren't an explanation for, but I believe in them. I like, right. I believe that they can happen. Nice. That's beautiful. Uh, so w were you going on some kind of journey in your mind when this, uh, when this treatment was happening? Yeah, well, I would say it was like multiple journeys that um, even at one point I kind of had this split screen visual and I was I was both seeing myself in the water and playing with dolphins and then also on a field running around. And I know this might sound crazy to some of your listeners and it was not a psychedelic experience. <laughs> it was just kind of what was happening through the process of this of this energy work. Wow. So you're sure he wasn't slipping you a little bit of ayahuasca on the sly? Nope, he was not. <laughs> <laughs> More broadly speaking, in terms of public figures or otherwise, who inspires you most and why? Mm. I have so many. I mean, I, I feel like I'm constantly inspired by both people around me on a day-to-day -day basis and also people kind of in, in public life, public figures. Um I recently um, heard a talk with a woman named Ganga Devi Braun, who does a lot of ecological healing and was very inspired by the way that she sees the world and is bringing in all these different understandings of nature and of ancient systems and of ecology to heal ourselves and heal the world. Um, and it was actually um, part of a... a learning journey that I'm on through the Buckminster Fuller Institute, which my dear friend Amanda Ravenhill runs. And she is also someone who inspires me every day with the, again, the way that she sees the world and the interconnectedness of global systems. Um, I have a roommate who is a respiratory therapist right now. And so he goes to work every day and is wow. uh, working with COVID patients. And it's so inspiring to me. And, uh, just that he is able to do it and has is in such good spirits and is such an optimist and positive person and so dedicated to what he's doing and um what a hero I, there's there's so many examples i i don't even i don't even know where to start <laughs> of I, I think especially right now like things people are coming out of the woodworks with small and large projects of uh ways that they can support their neighbors who are in need or support larger causes like getting PPE to hospitals who are running out of it or getting food to a friend of mine has uh, started this project to order food from San Francisco restaurants, which are otherwise closed and delivering them for free from night shift hospital workers to make sure that they have food that they're eating. So all these little things yeah. that 
people are doing are just amounting to tons of inspiration all over. That's such a great answer. And you know, the very reason that I do this podcast is so that I can share and uncover new references, great references that people are inspired by, you know, books, public figures, you know, people that <laughs> haven't necessarily been given the stage yet, or that a lot of people haven't heard of. And so those references are fantastic. Thank you for that. Uh, final question, um, Euclid Manor, where do you see it in three or four years time? Are you just hoping that it will be maintained and can continue as it is right now? Are you looking for some kind of evolution? You know, do you still want to be there in three or four years? So we don't own the home mm -hmm. and I don't think the possibility for us to, but my dream is to live in a co-living community where we own the home, own the land and wow. are able to to build, to make improvements on it, to build a garden. So I would love to see Euclid Manor still thriving as a co-living community. Um, although I personally think that I would love to be on a different property that I am co-owning with other people. Cause I think there's, there's something really important about, um, about ownership and about access to land and access to ownership. And, um, if I can even play a tiny part in that system of, um, changing the way that our that our markets work and the ways the rules of ownership um work which are which we can start to um uh, in which we can start to emphasize cooperative ownership um which side note i would i will say um the east bay permanent real estate cooperative is a huge inspiration and model for doing that for um giving access to ownership particularly particularly to um to communities of color in the East Bay so that they can own their own properties. And so, um, yeah, I would like to see more of a movement towards cooperative ownership. And if I can play a small part in that, I would love to. Amazing. You have spoken so eloquently. I've taken up so much of your time. Um, I'm going to leave it there, but it's been such a joy. This has been so fun. Thank you so much for having me, Oliver. I feel so educated. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope my hope is that we can always keep continuing to share our knowledge and inspiration with each other because that's what the world needs right now. The Natural High. The host of the party was Ilana Lipset and the location Euclid Manor. If you want to know a little bit more about it, go to opendoor.io forward slash Euclid hyphen manor.